Today we're going to continue a series that we started last week called The Bottom of the Ninth. And it really kind of grabs hold of those moments in our lives, those decisive moments where what looks like has been lost, that whether it's relationally or financially or our personal lives, professional lives, that moment where it looks like everything is worth just writing off, something happens. That a choice is made, a decision is made that turns the whole thing around. And that, that bottom of the ninth moment ends up re- rewriting the whole season sometimes. And last week we kind of introduced this idea. And if you weren't here or maybe this is your first time, I would encourage you to go back and check it out on the app. Because it kind of sets the course for what we're looking at through this month. Because here's what I know about all of us. Some of us are in the midst of a bottom of the ninth moment. Maybe it's in our marriage, maybe it's in our finances, maybe it's in our career path. But all of us at some point will find ourselves in the bottom of the ninth moment, where we're faced with a choice or decision, where it looks like all hope is lost, and we will have a decision in that moment that can determine significant outcomes in our life. And so this, this, this kind of series is meant to both serve you for where some of you are, but then to equip you, for those who are in this room who are maybe not in that moment, to have the tools to know how to make the decisions when that time comes. What I'm going to do today is kind of jump off on this idea of that decisive moment. And because that decisive moment, the decisions we make in that moment, is what determines the outcome. And so uh, I want to jump to a movie that just recently came out that that maybe some of you have seen um, and probably required counseling um, because you couldn't sleep, or maybe some of you have heard about, but let me just kind of give you the brief overview so you don't have to. Um, It's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. And the thing about Hacksaw Ridge is that not just that it was Oscar-nominated or even that it was Oscar-winning, it was the fact that that story, probably unlike most movies based on true stories, was almost completely accurate. That most movies you watch that are based on true stories are about as true as the fact that there was a human involved. That sometimes that's maybe all that is parallel. But Axel Ridge actually had a long, long journey to the screen. You see, the central character of the movie, the movie is a guy named Desmond Doss, who his entire life and his modesty um, was constantly approached by Hollywood Studios and said, we want to make a movie about what happened on the ridge that day. And Desmond always said, look, I'm not interested in making some glorified Hollywood movie. Unless you want to tell my story, don't try to write this story. And, um, and so he put really tight parameters. Even after he passed away, he made it very clear to his family who kind of held his story rights that the only way this movie gets made is if they're 100% accurate to what reality was that day. And so what happened is... On Hacksaw Ridge, it's called that because this, the Battle of Okinawa that's the backdrop for this kind of large deal that's played out on the, the movie screen or in the story of his life, is um, it was this decisive battle. In fact, in order to win that, they determined if we can take Hacksaw Ridge, we have a better chance of winning the overarching battle. And what ended up unfolding was that this near impossible feat ended up becoming the second bloodiest battle in World War II. That's why the movie is so incredibly gory, is because no other war battle fought in the Pacific was as devastating as this one was. What made this one so challenging is that Hacksaw Ridge was a 400-foot sheer cliff face, and that embedded inside of the ways that you would get to the top were machine gun nests from the Japanese and booby traps set to detonate 
when soldiers tried to pass through. And that day, in this near impossible kind of battle scene, his battalion with Private Desmond Doss, a conscientious objector who didn't even carry a gun because he believed it was wrong to kill someone, no matter what the circumstances, rushes into the most bloodiest battle in the Pacific. Shortly after they get there, in the midst of the machine gun fire, in the midst of this overwhelming Japanese presence, his battalion is ordered to retreat. And they begin to push back away from Hacksaw Ridge and begin to flee this battle scene. And the Japanese kind of just are laying this blanket of iron and steel, this just constant barrage of machine gun fire. And when everyone gets up to retreat, he does something extraordinary. Instead of running away from the battle, he runs into the battle. That he crawls into this active battle scene. And what, what's important to know is that Japanese, part of their military strategy when they'd go into the battle is they would target medics. They understood that a medic has a special place in, in a military camp in that they helped to save the soldiers that potentially would die if they weren't there. And so the Japanese would would pinpoint the medics in the group and would try to kill them specifically. And Desmond Doss, this man who stood up to run into the battle, is a medic. He's a guy who's there to save lives, and that's his vision frame. He's there not to bring death, but to help to save life. And while all of his kind of fellow soldiers begin to retreat because all they see is a battle that's been lost and the bodies that are on the field are just people who are casualties of war. They're just dying. Desmond sees people who he can save. And so he runs into the battle, machine guns blaring, and he grabs one of the bodies and he drags it back to the safe zone where he then, with a special knot that he tied, lowers them single-handedly down the 400-foot cliff to the medics that were waiting. And all the while he's like lowering their body in the midst of an active battle zone where he's the only one. He's praying, Lord, let me save one more. Because his vision is wrapped around trying to save a life. And once that body hit the ground, he did something extraordinary. He ran back into the battle. He grabs another soldier and drags him out and then lowers him single-handedly down. And he does it again and again. And over 12 hours, it's estimated that he saves 75 people. Over the course of a 12-hour battle, 75 individuals, the military actually estimated that he probably saved 100, but they settled on the number 75 because Doss, his entire life, was so modest that he insisted that the max that he rescued was only 50. And so they settled on 75. Truman would later, would later give him the Medal of Honor, the only conscientious objector to win that award. A man runs into a battle, battle zone, a devastating battle zone, without a gun, committed to saving a life because he had a vision that he was there to save someone. And that vision determined his decision. And the reason this story fits 
this idea of the bottom of the ninth is not just because Desmond Doss was in a bottom of the ninth kind of moment, but it's because Desmond Doss illustrates for us what guides us in those decisive moments, that what sets us up to be someone who makes a decision that turns the whole thing around. It's how they see the whole thing in the first place. That your vision, what you understand is happening in front of you, actually plays out in the decisions that you make. And I want to talk about that principle, this idea that like Doss, where everyone else saw defeat, he saw people that could still be saved. How do we do that? How do we learn to change the way we see things so that it influences the decisions we make when we're in those high-pressure, high-stress moments, like the bottom of the ninth? When we're in that marital spat that is escalating constantly, how do we come back down to see what's really important? And what's really in happening around us. When we're in the midst of that moment with a roommate and a relationship that's falling apart, how do we bring it back to what is essential and what is right in front of us? And to do that, to talk through those, dyna those dynamics, I want to jump to a story that maybe uh, you've never read before. I'm going to go ahead and be very honest with you because I think it's helpful when we read stories. Some of us maybe have been reading the Bible for a long time. We can forget how odd it really is. And this is a story that's extremely odd. Very odd. Like supernatural miracles, like, like really kind of that level, like whoa, odd. And here's my challenge for you, no matter where you are in this spiritual journey, is that don't get caught up in the oddity of the story. What I want you to see is how ordinary the people are in the story. And how something thousands of years ago, still plays out in our everyday life today. This story is found in the book of Numbers, which is a, a book that maybe many of us, if we've even read the Bible, probably haven't spent much time in it. It's a story that's an incident in the storyline of Israel that literally happens thousands of years ago. Thousands of miles away. I mean, this is so foreign and so distant from where we are, but yet what plays out is very much relevant to where we are today. The, the book of Numbers was part of, to give you a little bit of a Jewish history, was part of the first five books in the Old Testament. It's, the, it's part of the Torah, the Jewish, like, if, the Jewish holy book. This is a really important book to the Jewish history because it tells the story of the Jewish people. Jewish people were a people that were born out of a promise to a man named Abraham whose descendants became slaves in Egypt, who in the midst of praying and asking God to do something, God shows up in what becomes one of the most extraordinary moments in human history through a series of miraculous events that are condensed into a time frame that humanity has never seen uh, since outside of maybe the, the life and ministry of Jesus himself. So this is an incredibly miraculous time where God orchestrates a series of events that allows an enslaved people, a Jewish people in the nation of Egypt, to be rescued almost 3,500 years ago. And that them, because of the miraculous intervention of God, these Jewish people leave Egypt in this exodus and find themselves at the basis of a mountain where uh, this becomes the backdrop for the giving of what becomes known as the Ten Commandments. 
And to understand it in our, our day, this is like the Declaration of Independence and the, the drafting of the U.S. Constitution. It wasn't that they were just getting some rules and some guidelines from God and getting to know him. They were becoming a people. This was their founding charter as a nation, was these religious documents God was handing down through Moses. So a nation is literally born at the base of a mountain. And these people begin to travel towards this land that they believe God has promised to them. The same land, in fact, that still exists today that we call Israel. And they begin to travel. And about a year has gone by from that foot of the mountain moment to where they are now. And in the midst of the desert, God has been providing, again, this supernatural provision Every day they wake up, there's something called manna on the ground. And manna literally translated is, what is that? Right? It's the kid when they have that thing slid in front of them that they've never seen, and they say, what's that? That's manna. They, they didn't have a clue what it was, and God said, here, eat this. This is the desert. Right? There's not a lot of fast food restaurants around, and you've got to eat something. And God miraculously provided every single day for them this thing called manna. And this is the backdrop for this story, these uh, five verses that I want to read through that kind of help frame this conversation. Because it helps to understand that a year has gone by of eating the same thing. And Numbers 11, um, it's already loaded in the app for you if you want to kind of join me. If not, uh, if you don't have the app, you can follow along on the screen behind me. It says that the rabble would then begin to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. And the people went around gathering it and then ground it into a hand mill or crushed it into a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it in the loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. And when the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Now, in the storyline, what we see is a people who, after a year eating manna, they begin to grumble. You hear them start to complain, right? They, they say things like, oh, do you remember the Brazilian steakhouse that we had in Egypt? The meat that came to the table when we just flipped over our cart. The green, it just kept coming. We didn't have to pay for the meat. Somebody else was paying for the bill. Oh, do you remember? Do you remember the salad bar they had? Those cucumbers and the fruit bar they had? Man, it was incredible. It was an all-you-can-eat Egyptian buffet. And we didn't even have to pay. Can you remember that? And this is what's kind of stirring around in the group. Is the description of the food and how tasty it was and how good it was and how free it was. And to be completely honest, they are being factual about what the food in Egypt was like. Because of the Nile River, there was an abundance of fish. There was cucumbers and melons. There were fruit and vegetables that were very much watery and filling and sweet and tasty. But what they were missing, what was happened, is while the description of the food was factual, the story they were drafting around it was not. 
You see, while the food was actually free, they weren't. They were a people who were fixating on a free meal in the midst of being enslaved. They remembered the food being free, but they forgot that they weren't. And this subtle kind of drifting in their thought, this crafting of a new storyline, is at the heart of the danger that you and I can face when we step into these bottom of the ninth moments. Because what we choose to focus on becomes the foundation for the stories we start to create and we tell ourselves. They were crafting a story. They were crafting this narrative around this focal point of the food being free. And they were forgetting that they weren't. They were getting wrapped up in it and creating these if-onlys. Oh, if only we had that, then we'd be happy. If only we had that, then we'd be satisfied. All of this story coming out of a selectively focused fact while completely ignoring the rest of it. And the danger is you see this dynamic. You see them focusing. They have this sight on something, and then they begin the self-talk, right? Oh, if only. You remember those cucumbers? Remember those, that meat, the melon? And then it becomes a storyline. Right? Oh, man, that was good. If only we had that again, we'd be happy. We're miserable here. We're grumbling here. And this narrative starts to kind of take over. You can see that subtly in the Hebrew where it says that they begin to crave other food. It's actually an idiom that Moses, the writer, writes. He says that they began to crave a craving. They began to desire a desire. They had completely lost sight of reality. And it began to consume them. It wasn't the food. It was the idea of the food that began to take over them and began to, to dictate the storyline that they were playing out. And it started not only just to set the storyline that they said, it also started to set their course. They began to complain. They began to grumble. Their actions are being influenced by the story that they're telling themselves, built on the foundation of what they're focusing in on. In the midst of ignoring everything else around it. And we do the same thing. This is why this story, I think, is so relevant to where we are, is we have a tendency to do the same things in our own lives. Right? That whether it's with a roommate who continues to put dishes in the sink instead of the dishwasher, even though we've said time and time and time again, just move them three feet and let gravity help you. Just like this. This is all you got to do. What's wrong with you? Right? We begin to craft this narrative like, man, they're just inconsiderate. They're in depth. They don't care about me. Because they're not willing to move three feet and let gravity take it down into a dishwasher. I mean, we do that. Or we see our spouse and the snarky comment they made or the toothpaste that gets squeezed from the middle instead of the bottom, that we focus on something, that we fixate on something, and we start to ignore all the other things around it. And we miss that, and in missing it, we start to craft a narrative. We may even look at our own checking account or no savings account, and we say, if only I had more money, then dot, dot, dot. That we can recreate 
and play out the same thing this people, these people are doing thousands of years ago. Because they're human, and we're human, and this is what humans do in those moments when we're not being careful, when we're just allowing what's happening in front of us to dictate to us a narrative because we're choosing to focus on certain things. And I believe there is a better way. But in even saying that, what I don't want you to hear me say before I transition is that I'm advocating positive thinking like seeing things that aren't exactly yet real in our lives and, and just pressing into that because one day it'll happen. Like I'm not advocating pie in the sky, ignore reality right in front of you. That's not what the other way is. The other way is about reality itself and realizing that then the day what we focus on becomes the foundation of the stories we tell ourselves. And when we tell ourselves these stories, they start to set a course that play out in our lives. So the other way is really about what we focus on not about what we make up or imagine. And it's present in this text. You have to remember that, first of all, there's a group of people who are being quoted. And then there's the invisible hand of the writer who does for us what is really helpful and what is essential for us to do when we get in those high-pressure moments. He takes the pen and he redirects from a quote to a fact, right? The quote ends at verse 6 when they say, we never see anything but this manna. And then this invisible hand, the writer, Moses, of this passage says, the manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. And the people went around gathering it and then ground it in the hand mill or crushed it into a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or they made it into loaves. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. And if we're not careful, we're not really reading it, if we're just browsing through it, we can miss that the writer of this text is doing something for us. The very thing that we need to do ourselves in these moments. He redirects our focus. They're focused on what they don't have. They're focused on the meat they don't have to eat, the salad bar, the fruit bar, and he says, no, let's talk about the manna that they see as just the worst thing ever. And then he selectively calls out certain traits. Moses says, let me highlight some things about this. And he begins to redirect us to look at something else. He starts by saying that the manna is sweet. Uh, he calls it, he, he alludes to resin, this specific resin that would have been very sweet that people in the ancient uh, Middle East would have known about when they were reading this text. This is the resin that comes from this certain type of tree after it's been punctured by this certain type of insect, and that resin can be collected, and it's like a sweet treat. And then he, he, he alludes to coriander seed, which is a spice. It's used to, to make food taste better and to kind of bring a little life. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's not just sweet, it's tasty. It's kind of, it's, it has a flavor to it. And then he's like, it's dynamic. He's like, this is like the most versatile product ever. You can, you can pound it up, you can slice it out, you can put it in a pot, you can like bake it in an oven. I mean, it kind of almost goes to like the Forrest Gump thing with shrimp, right? The baked shrimp, the boiled shrimp, the fried shrimp, like all the things you could do with shrimp that kind of happens in Forrest Gump, the movie. Like Moses just says, let's pull back. There are a lot of things that can happen with this sweet and tasty thing called manna. And he redirects our attention 
Because it's as if Moses is saying through how he directs our focus that, look, here's the thing. Don't focus on what you see. Focus on what is right in front of me. And what is right in front of me is a sweet, tasty, versatile, dynamic sustenance that has allowed you to survive for a solid year in the desert. He's saying, look, don't focus on the fact that there isn't fish or vegetables or fruit present in the desert. What I want to remind you of, what I want to direct your attention to, is the fact that there should be no food in the desert, and yet somehow there is. Like, that's what your attention should be on. That's the foundation of the story that you need to write. Is not that there's not meat and vegetables and a salad and fruit bar, but that there should be no food at all. And for some bizarre reason, there's food every day you wake up for the last year. Focus on that. Fixate on that storyline. Just recently, um, my wife and I uh, took... Ella on uh, a Disney trip. It was kind of the first time I'd ever really been to Disney, um, so I was probably just as excited as she was, quite honestly. And so we'd been there a couple days and um, kind of were doing the different parks and the different rides, and, um, and we decided to go into Disney Springs, which is kind of the big shopping district in Disney World. And so we walk into the largest Disney store on planet Earth. And in fact, if there are aliens somewhere in the world and they have a Disney store, it's probably still bigger than that, too. I mean, this thing is massive. And it's a little overwhelming. I walk in and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I notice that my daughter walks in and is like, oh, my goodness. Right? <laughs> this is promised land. And so she's just like, this is awesome. And it's like running to the princess section, looking at all the dolls and kind of like scoping this whole thing out. And, and so we're like okay, we need to go, we got to keep this thing moving, and um, she's like, but I don't have anything, like, we're like, we got to get out of the store, and she's like, starts to get upset with us, like, I don't have anything, and then, you know, just going to be real with you, that part of me is like, what? Girl, you're standing in Disney World, what are you saying to me? Like, I like, you know, you know that part of you that just rises up is like, did she really just say in the middle of the largest Disney store in the whole wide world on the fact that we at Disney World itself that I ain't got nothing? Like, I need to take care of this. I'm like, Jenny, hold me back. <laughs> I literally looked at my wife and I was like, hold me back. Because <laughs> I can't believe this happened. She just said that. And fortunately for me in that moment, I have a really wise wife, and, and God's word kind of helps to shape how I think. And, um, and it hit me that what Moses was trying to do in this passage, I, I need to do as a parent. That instead of getting just angry, instead of kind of bringing the hammer down, I need to redirect her focus. And so I leaned down, and I was like, sweetie, where are we? Where are we? What is our family? Like, what has daddy's left kidney provided for you this week? Disney World. So do you think that I have nothing is really true? Well, no, but I want. I, baby, I understand you want. But it is, I have nothing really true. 
Like we've had three extraordinary days as a family doing so many things that we'll never forget. And you're focusing on something that you won't remember in three years. A doll that eventually will be donated to savers or thrown away. So do you really have nothing? And that was like one of those parenting wins that I had that's the exception to the rule. But in that moment, I was doing to Ella what God is seeking to do to us through this text. Where it was a redirect, a subtle redirect to say what is right in front of you. What do you have right in front of you? Not what you don't have, but what do you have? Because we can say, well, they don't care about the relationship. But the reality is, is that they're still there. So there's something. There's some pair somewhere inside of there because they're still present with you. Right? It's easy to focus on that or to, I'm not good enough and to, to buy into those insecure lies and all around our lives is a reality of the opposite. Well, I'm, I'm not smart enough to work there. I'm not good enough. They're probably going to let me go. And I want to be like, but they hired you. That says something. Like, let's not focus and build a foundation of a storyline. When in reality, there's some things in front of you that should shape how you tell your own story. Like, I mean, there's moments where being real, if I'm like, oh, if I only made a little bit more money, and I want to be like, man, the 10-year, like, version of me, like, 10 years ago, if, if they, like, saw my, like, pay stub now, they'd be like, this is Lifestyles of Rich and Famous, right? The 10-year, like, ten, think, think, think back 10 years ago. That version of you would think you're loaded. Man, look what you got there. But we just keep moving the goal line, don't we? If only I get over there. If only they act this way. If only we had this. And we allow our focus to become a foundation of a storyline that ultimately starts to destroy us and to rob us from those defining moments in our lives where things could turn out so differently. And so I would just say, like, what's the, for you that question would be, what is right in front of you? If you find yourself in, in this place where you're thinking, if only... I would say, well, what's right in front of you? The scary question that popped in my head a couple days ago that I sometimes ask myself is, if tomorrow the only thing I woke up with was what I thank God for today, what would I have? It's like a terrifying thought. If you're like, what if the only thing I had tomorrow when I woke up was the things I thanked God for today? Man, it would foster a different mindset, wouldn't it? Because all of a sudden you realize there's so many things in my life that I should be thankful for, that I have not been thankful for. That, and instead of fixating what I don't have, I could focus on what I do. And this is just how Moses gently leads us, because what Moses understands is that if we're not careful, that narrative can shape a deep, deeper, deeper narrative. And this is what we see in verse 9, where Moses just in a very lovingly way, rebukes them. And says, when the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. That's just a simple sentence. But it's not simple. He's saying, look, while you were sleeping at night, 
Because this narrative, under, the deeper narrative underneath their, their grumbling was that things were better than Egypt. Things were better in Egypt than they are right here. What they're really trying to get at is that God is not good. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He's not concerned about me. That's the deeper narrative that's underneath the story. It's underneath their complaints. That somehow the slave holders, the people who beat them, who murdered their children, were better to them in their enslavement than God had been in the desert. And it's this deeper narrative that Moses just says, hey, I want to remind you of something that when you go to sleep at night, the manna comes down. While you sleep, God's providing. While you're resting your head on the pillow, God is putting food on the ground for you. While you're just there passively laying in a bed, God is preparing for your needs tomorrow. He's saying, while you slept, God is working for you and with you. He's still here even in the midst of your grumbling and complaining. Even in the midst of your pain and your panic, he's still present. They had forgotten that. And Moses is trying to remind them of that. In December um, of this past year in Boston, one of the auction houses um, uh, put up to bid this really kind of cute, quaint note written by Queen Elizabeth to Prince William when he was smaller. And it just is uh, this subtle hint at a gift that she had given. And the way she signed it kind of has a a backdrop that uh, when he was younger, that uh, there was a point he'd fallen, he'd gotten hurt, and Prince William was really upset and was crying. And um, all that kind of the the servants in the house were trying to kind of soothe and kind of calm him down. And he kept demanding Gary. He was like, I want Gary. I want Gary. And they're like... What, what servants named Gary? We don't know Gary. We can't, like the prince is upset and we can't calm him down. Like someone find Gary because I want my Gary. And then about that time, around the corner walks Queen Elizabeth. And she says, I'm here, I'm Gary. I'm Granny. That's how he says it. And I think that what can happen is that we forget sometimes that the God of the universe is not distant and passive, that he's intimate and close, that he's providing for us, and that if we click zoom out enough on this story, what starts to happen is not that we just fixate on a moment, but we realize over the entire movement of our life has been the presence of God providing for us even when we did not care he was there. And no matter where we are in our current struggle, we have a backdrop, a billboard that over the course of our life says that he has provided for you. Maybe it's not what you would have liked. Maybe it's not everything you hoped it would be. But that somehow in the midst of even in a broken world, God was still working, preparing, providing for you and me. And that's the deeper narrative That Moses tries to press into when he says that while they slept, that each night the manna would come down. And that for some of us where we are right now, I would just encourage you that this deeper narrative, do not allow the circumstances of your life to cause you to question the character of God. 
But do not project on His character your struggle in your current circumstances. Because He is faithful. And He is good. And if we're not careful, we will choose to focus on the wrong things and those wrong things become the foundation of a story that begins to lead us away from those moments and those life choices that we really desire to be. Because in the end, right, this God who loves us, who's for us, who gives us grace that's present is desires to write a bigger narrative in our lives than any of us would imagine to ever be written in our own. But here's the key. Not just in this passage, but in those critical bottom of the ninth moments that the person that we want to be, the persons that we all hope we are in those moments, in those moments of decisions, what will be shaped will be our vision. That, that our vision and how we see will determine the decisions we make out of those moments. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this story, for this message, for this passage of the way that you're present in our lives. And forgive us for those times where we um, focus on the wrong things. Where we begin in our focus to build a story that ignores the other things happening around. Whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our relationships with our kids or with our roommates or in our career paths, help us to be people who understand the power of how we choose to see does have an impact on it. That we would be a people who would hit zoom out and take a step back and see the bigger reality of your provision to find peace, not panic, in those bottom of the ninth moments. And for those who are maybe in, in a, a period where that's not, they, there's not a pressing, there's not a, they're not in one of those decisive moments. God, may you help us to remember the truths, the things that you revealed to us today. And uh, we love you. We pray that we would be people who would live lives worthy of the love that you have for us. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray.